0: Hi, I'm Stephen Crafty. I'm here at RMIT University in Melbourne, and I'm presenting Talking Design. I'm here with a woman called Robin Lyons. I remember her from my past, um, but I also happened just to a chance meeting at the Paran Market, and I went up to her and I said, oh, hi, Robin, you probably don't remember me. And uh, she said, yes, I do, I do. Anyway, uh, Robin is now a Program Coordinator of Fashion and Textiles Merchandising at RMIT University. She's had a very interesting career in fashion, but she started as a primary school teacher before going to um, changing directions and becoming very involved with uh, the Saba label, Joe Saba. Welcome, Robin.
1: Thank you, Stephen. It's lovely to be here.
0: Robin, most people change directions at least three times in their careers you were a primary school teacher that's right and why the change
1: okay um My family background has always been uh, the retail or they were merchandisers basically and it's always been in my blood and fashion has been there too. My grandfather um, used to have fabric mills in the country area around Ballarat and um, was impeccably dressed, beautiful tailored suits and I think the love, the family love came from him and that carried right through. So Being a Ballarat girl born and bred, um, not a lot to do once you finished your year 12 in Ballarat, apart from nursing and teaching. So Mm. automatically went into primary teaching. Um, That passion, remember, was all the way through. Um, So after 12 years of teaching, I thought, time to do what I really adore. And I took a leave. From teaching. What year are we looking at? Lo- oh, do I have to mention that? Well just Lifetime roughly ago? A decade. Okay. Um, late it 70s. was late 70s. Yes. Yep. So in the late 70s, I decided, okay, time to take time out, do what I want to do. So um, I am connected to Joe Saba and always have been. We're actually related. And um, Joe was always aware of my love of fashion and interest in it. So I started off basically on the shop floor at Saba with Joe. In, um, in Turak Road. In Road.
0: South Yarra.
1: Yes. So not only in the import store, but also in a store that was further up the road called Saber Diffusion, which had alternative punk type labels, really interesting things. And, you know, some of the consumers that, that came in there were people like Iggy Pop and um, Tina Turner and Rod Stewart. I think
0: for people who don't... No, for those listeners who don't yeah. know, the fashion of the time, it was a huge breakaway movement in the late 70s where things really got very oversized, yeah. very deconstructed yeah. and the Japanese influence really started to kick in.
1: That's right. That's so people
0: right. would have walked or seen pa- walk past the mm-hmm. stores and mm-hmm. said what the hell.
1: Yeah. Exactly. Couldn't understand, really. But Joe was the first to actually bring those Japanese labels here into Australia. Like
0: Izumiaki. Like
1: Izumiaki, Kom de Gasson, Yoshi Yamamoto.
0: Amazing foresight. yeah,
1: Yeah, it really, really was. He was always a man like that, though.
0: Always. Robin, when he bought those things to start with, did you think he was jumping off the deep end? No,
1: no, because I could see it. I could see that this country really needed something like that. Amazing. Really did, yeah.
0: And what was the reaction?
1: Um, spectacular, straight away. It was really interesting. Um, those labels were in the store on Turek Road, but also in Burke Street, at the top end of Burke Street. Um, so two very different stores, the more intimate store in Turak yeah. Road and a very dramatic black store at the top end of Burke Street, just near where the Southern Cross was.
0: I think I remember talking to Joe at the time, or more recently, no, decades later. And I asked him about that period and he said that he bought for the whole season and it sold out in three weeks and he was desperate. He did.
1: Yes, he did. Uh, Because there was this following, like a big cult following of people that couldn't get anything like it here, just couldn't. And they loved design, they loved beauty, they loved quality and they loved things that were different.
0: And they were different. They were. rubberized totally. jumpers.
1: Yes, yes. Uh, totally deconstructed garments, sleeves missing, garments that were slashed or cut. And
0: did, you have to f- did you find that you had to educate the consumer or you found that those who got it got it?
1: There were a core that got it, that really got it. And then the others, yes, you did have to educate. And once once they understood they became devotees to those labels. Yeah.
0: So you stayed with Sava for how many years? Uh,
1: would you believe 28?
0: Amazing. So you Right
1: have... through until Joe sold the Saba label in 2002. It's amazing. Yeah, a yeah, long, long time. So
0: you would have seen a lot of change in the retail scene.
1: Incredible in amount of change. I mean, um, everything from those dramatic labels right through to stores that had to cater, had to cater locally to a more commercial market as well. Um, the... I guess you really had to um, do what was seen as the in thing in the latter part of the Saba days. So we became very commercial to an extent. There was still um, the Saba Black Label, which, you know, fed that market area of the consumer that really loved beauty, quality and design. And then you had your Saba Diffusion or your pink label or blue label, which catered more to the commercial market.
0: So, Robin, looking back, you know, people, you know, look at retail and they say, oh, the internet has taken over, mm. retail's dead, you know, why would you go into a shop? No one talks about retail design or the experience of going into a great store like Saba yeah, yeah. in the 70s, 80s and through the mm. 90s. What's happened? Okay. Because no one talks about it.
1: No, they don't. Because um, fast fashion has basically taken over, and I say has, past tense, um, or had, I should say, past tense, uh, had taken over so that um, it was disposable fashion. That was what was um, desperately required here by the consumer. You're starting to see now, though, a a new focus. And now, unless you understand what's going to happen now and woo the consumer, they're going to be lost. And part of that is bringing back that wonderful environment, that beautiful place for the consumer to be. Um, Not just visually, but the feeling, the sight, the sound, everything about it, even the smell. It's the whole experience of the retail scene now. And it's starting to come back. And you really need to understand the new consumer psyche,
0: really. Well, you're very involved, obviously, at RMIT in the merchandising side. It's interesting because Turak Road, where Joe Saba was Mm. very well represented for many years, you see people opening stores now and they they string a few clothes in the window on these rusty hangers and you think, what are they doing? What are they doing, Robert? I don't think they know what they're
1: doing, to nothing. be honest. I, yeah, they're doing nothing. They're doing what everybody else worldwide is doing and not setting themselves apart. And that's why you see this constant change. There's no longevity or very little...
0: Because Except for a few in.
1: pockets. They don't put in. They don't understand.
0: How do you? What is visual merchandising for those who don't really get it or don't understand?
1: Um, well, part of what I do is visual merchandising, but it's really the business side as well as the mm. creative. So one of the courses that we do is visual merchandising. And what that is, it's um, the environment around you, basically. It's what it looks like, what's going to appeal to the consumer, what's going to set your product or your brand apart from anything else. And that's what it is probably one of the better people, and it's a very commercial label that does this, is Sports Girl here. Mm. I mean, for their target market, their visual merchandising is exceptional. Mm. It really is. You look at that store and you know exactly who it's appealing to and how.
0: I mean, I did a story um, some time ago on their new Burke Street store. Yeah, yeah. And look, it wasn't my taste. Obviously, I'm not their target market. But I was impressed Mm. with the setup. They had a DJ. Mm. They had a a room, a a style room. I mean, you could see the pleasure the kids were getting in that store. And good on them. They've really targeted that market. Mm.
1: And that's part of what I'm talking about. You need to make that environment appealing now or you're not going to have a consumer base. The world... Is at your fingertips. It's a second away. You know we're a small global community mm. now, so anything is available at any time, anywhere.
0: So, Robin, you're saying that you think there will be a return to that Definitely. retail experience.
1: Definitely. Definitely. And you're starting to see it. You're starting to see it with um, companies worldwide, like the ASOS Group, which um, Shaftoani Karen Millen, one of his labels, is Karen Millen here. Um, overseas, they have Coast, they have Oasis, etc. And what they're doing is bringing back that whole experience for the consumer in what what is called omni-retailing. So it's looking not only at the bricks and mortar, but looking at the whole technological side of the business, giving the consumer what they want in a beautiful environment.
0: Do you think it's just an easy cop-out when people say, oh, the internet, it's taking retail? I do,
1: 100% definitely I do. If you actually look at the figures... At the moment, it's basically between 10 and 15% of turnover of most companies. The internet? The internet. They're online shopping.
0: So we're still looking at 85% Uh, of of people walking into a store. Yes, you are.
1: So what's happening there and why are they losing that business? Because there's no beautiful retail environment for them to be in.
0: Is it also the people who are going into retail aren't exactly right? Sometimes it can be. Because yeah. I find going into a store, um, it gets quite embarrassing sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. You know, they should, I mean, in a sense, they have to be part psychologists and read the customer. Mm-hmm. And I find when you go in and um, they start picking an, uh, an item that you might be wearing, mm-hmm. you know, I love your shoes or I love your, mm-hmm. this, to get you to buy. Mm-hmm. And you just think, look, cut the crap. Yeah,
1: exactly. I would agree 100%. So, how,
0: you know, how do, these, how do these skills get developed?
1: Okay, um, getting, getting students for starters, from my perspective, to understand what the consumer is about, who they are, what their life is like, how they live their life, what their needs are in that life, Mm. and look at that and bring that experience into the retail environment. For example, um, some of our students have done projects for um, companies like Country Road where they've actually brought a whole experience within... Mm. Um, A store, whether it be just the cafe, a little layback lounge, um, interactive equipment, uh, whether it be on the technological side for the consumer to play with while they're there, um, styling facilities, bringing back the old craft. So having a little denim mini workshop within that store so people can see, they know, they understand the craftsmanship. So bringing back those sorts of things, Um, having little bars where you can put your own take on a garment. So, like Nike are doing with developing sport shoes, you can adapt them or adjust them to what mm-hmm. you want. So, bringing back those sorts of experiences, making that customer feel they're important, they're welcome, and they want to be in that space.
0: So, you said going back to a much more personalized
1: experience. I do. Totally. Yeah,
0: totally. I'd like to think you're right yeah. because the retail scene in Melbourne is pretty mm. gloomy at the moment. It is. And you look and it's just fast food. Yes. Yep. And, and people, you know, and and the reason is, oh, people aren't buying. But, you know, I tend to say, well, people would buy mm. if there was something out there.
1: Exactly. Exactly. Now, product number one, obviously. That's right. They would if it was out there, but also if the service was there too. And I'm starting to hear and see too companies coming and saying, staff training, what can we do to get our staff to under- understand the consumer? Where are yeah. we going wrong? So you can see rumblings. You can see it starting to happen.
0: So will we start to see this in the next few years? Or do you yes. think it's a five to ten year uh, period?
1: Probably the next couple of years you'll start to see it developing.
0: The other thing that I think is important because of the internet, one thing mm-hmm. that is strong now is that ideas appear so quickly mm-hmm. and that a fresh idea is only fresh for five minutes. Yeah. So how do you kind of stop that? How do you maintain that freshness?
1: Okay, that's where you have to become very innovative and very creative. And this is going to be the main thing that is going to be um, what sets, sets the retailer apart. Uh, now, because you've got all the international brands coming in here as well, and that immediacy of the internet, mm. you can't just do what people have been doing over all these years, past years, go away, buy samples, adapt them in some way. You can't anymore. That creative, that design side has to come back. It's the and point I suppose of difference.
0: you have to find your own voice. Of
1: course you do. Your own voice, your own brand, your own signature, yeah.
0: And target your market. And
1: target your market.
0: What are the type of things that students do in the program that you're involved in? What are the type of things they get to do on a... I've seen some things in the Cardigan Street store, Cardigan Street window, you know, where they put displays together. Mm -hmm.
1: Okay, my students actually, first-hand experience, work with companies I have um, all my second years, the mm. second year students of the associate degree, fashion, textiles, merchandising, working with Country Road, Sports Girl, Target. They have with Spotlight in the Past and mm. Calibre. And they work on design briefs. So those companies come in at the very start of the year. They deliver a brief to the students. Mm. The students work in groups that replicate how you would work out in industry. So they have their CEO come team leader, they have their head of design, their head of production, their head of marketing, etc. and they develop those briefs through to market readiness and present them back to the industry partners. Um, the sorts of briefs that are delivered, things like um, sports school might say, okay, I want you to develop a party wear range. Um,
0: party wear range, actually the... The, clo- the, the, the actual, setting?
1: No, no. The, th- the actual garments, oh, clothing. Right. We're talking clothing yeah, okay. design here. Yeah. So a range for the target market, for the sports girl ta- target market, for those girls. Mm. Uh, it might be a range that you could wear to a music festival. Now, not only do they develop the actual clothing designs, but they have to come up with the marketing behind it, the promotions behind it. The
0: window displays. The
1: visual merchandising window displays in-store. Mm. Um, and then the business side, how many units they predict they're going to sell, in um, what colour, and what size, over what period of time. They have to come up with every single thing involved with that range.
0: Huge task.
1: Massive. That's why it takes the full year. Mm-hmm. And the actual industry partners, the designers, the CEOs come in and they give them feedback halfway through, as you would in industry, mm-hmm. if you're presenting a range to the board, and then... At the end, um, they will give an award of excellence to the top winning groups.
0: It's very easy to say uh, fashion's dead yeah. and then nothing's happened, but yeah. I do still look back very fondly on the early 80s in particular yeah. Yeah. as a very a milestone in fashion. I would agree. Yeah. I think the Japanese made a huge difference, yeah. and people like Joe Saba mm. um, and yourself with Joe, an extraordinary yeah. um, difference. Are we going to see another uh, milestone? Or you think that's not fashion anymore or it's just not going to happen. I mean, I don't want to be a, you know, doomster, uh, yeah. but it was just such a, a, a golden moment yeah. in fashion yeah. and I haven't seen it replaced yeah. for a long time. Yeah.
1: Look, I believe that it will. What it will be, I don't know. How it will appear, I don't know, but I believe it will. I think the the climate is there now for something like that to happen. I really believe that you know, where things are going to be set apart. Where somebody like a Joe Sapa in the 80s, you know, was the only Australian ever mentioned in the book Fashion Exposed that was written, an international Mm. book, um, as a designer here.
0: Extraordinary man. Yeah, he really was.
1: And I believe, you know, that it will happen.
0: I suppose it needs needs people like Joe with vision. It does. And people who do take a risk. Yeah, definitely. And I think probably at the moment there are a few risk takers with the climate that we've got.
1: There are. And that's why I think you'll see them coming.
0: Robin, when you walk along Turak Road mm. now, it's not the same no. as it was in the 80s. No. How do you feel?
1: I feel depressed. <laughs> that's, why, that's why I don't go there as often as I used to. I find it very depressing. You see store after store that's empty. And the ones that are uh, so-called trading, mm. you could put a label on most of the, the merchandise in it. could be any label in that street with very few exceptions. I just – it's lost its soul. It's lost its creativity. Mm. It's lost its – all Mm.
0: Yeah, it really needs someone like John to come along, yeah. set up something extraordinary, yeah. or people like Pierre Asherswold, right. who we've interviewed on the show, yeah. uh, to come along with a vision yeah. to really kickstart yeah. it again.
1: It does. And it does need someone like that.
0: One area that has really seemed to find its feet and has really created quite a strong voice, I feel, anyway, and a lot of people in the industry think, Also, is Gertrude Street. I was
1: going to mention that and I agree totally. It's one area I spend quite a bit of time in.
0: Why do you think that's been successful?
1: Because of the people that have gone in there and what they're doing, they're not mainstream. They're not following the crowd. They are. You've got
0: people like Sa.na. Yes, yeah. S. Yeah, yeah. S Laboratory. Yes,
1: yes. They're. they're left. Y- yep. If you watch them, I mean, I remember when Nelly first opened Left. I don't know whether you... Yes. you yeah, N-
0: Nellie... I
1: forgot, can't remember her surname.
0: She was the founder of Left. She was the
1: founder of Left, and she was exceptional. She always was one of those people that stood out. Foresight, creativity, innovative. And the same with our Bromwan at Nicholson. Yes, yeah, she's an ex Saba staff member. She's <laughs> yeah. an ex Saba girl. Wow. Yes. She used fascinating to fascinating woman. Yeah, she used to be up in the Turak Road shop in yeah, Turak, yeah. yeah. Um they have foresight, they have drive and, and they won't accept the mainstream.
0: And it's and it is like a little village. It it's, is. It could be, you know, Tribeca mm. in New York.
1: Exactly, exactly. Yeah, I would agree. I think it's one area. The other area that should have done that but never ever did was Greville Street. A long time ago, you could see rumblings, but nothing really developed much from there. It had potential, but it never ever quite got to that extent.
0: Uh, You know, it's interesting. Look, I find it fascinating how areas change. Gertrude Street's been an area that's really been... Getting from Going from street to street. But it's not
1: just fashion. If you have a look, it's quite eclectic. You know, it's um, innovative interiors. Mm. It's food. Mm. You know, your restaurants along there. It's the whole thing. It's the whole experience.
0: Well, that's why when visitors come to Melbourne, mm. I always say to go to Gertrude yeah. Street. Yeah, Robin, look, it's been an absolute pleasure having you in today. Um I still remember walking into Saba in the early 80s. I was a customer, and um, so was my wife, and mm. we just still remember the wonderful clothes and just the braveness and audacity, and and look, it paid off. Mm. And I just hope that there's another Joe Saba in the wings um, in the next few years for everyone's sake.
1: Mm, I would agree, Stephen, and likewise I remember you and your wife too because <laughs> you always stood out, and that's why our chance meeting at the Param market over the meat... <laughs> worked.
0: <laughs> Thanks so much, Rob, for welcome. coming in today. You've been with Stephen Crafty, Talking Design at RMIT University in Melbourne. Thanks so much for listening.